0: Our scripture reading for today is Nehemiah 6, 1-16. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hekafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel that is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Methabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elo, in 52 days, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God." The word of our Lord. Be to God.
1: The Lord be with you.
0: And the Lord bless you. Thank
1: you. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we thank you again for your word. And now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our God, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. So far, we've seen Nehemiah, moved by the plight of the Israelites in Judah, prayerfully over several months, make plans to rebuild the wall and repair the broken gates surrounding Jerusalem. We've seen him expertly leverage his position in the Persian court to gain the necessary authority and the resources to make that reconstruction possible. We have seen him navigate his way through verbal, political, and military threats posed by local opposition. And last week, we saw him resolve the internal strife within his community caused by socioeconomic disparities and sinful lending practices. Now, as you just heard, with the work almost completed, Nehemiah's enemies mount one last effort to ruin the project by frightening and discrediting Nehemiah. In order to do that, they have to get him to agree to meet with them. First, in Hakkeferim, probably a border town in the plain of Ono, and then later in the house of God inside the temple. The suggestion to meet in a town in the plain of Ono sounds not unreasonable. The building project is nearly finished, and perhaps his enemies have come to accept the fact and they wanna work out some sort of agreement moving forward. But based on his past dealings with Sanballat and his allies, Nehemiah suspects that this is a trap. And so he diplomatically declines their invitation, telling them that he's too busy. Sanballat and his allies, however, will not take a no on their meetup in Ono. And they persist with repeated invitations before sending a fifth letter revealing their true intentions. It's an open letter alerting Nehemiah that the contents are already known to everyone and that it will reach the ears of the king. The letter purports to know about Nehemiah's rebellious plans to become the king of the Jews, perhaps even a messianic king by having prophets declare him king. Nehemiah knows that these latest charges of sedition and insurrection are complete fabrications, and that they're only designed to frighten him, to weaken the resolve of the people, and to sabotage the completion of the wall. And so he spends very little time in defending himself or his reputation. He does not launch a PR campaign, does not get into a Twitter war. Just as Jesus remains silent against his accusers, Nehemiah 2 remains largely silent. And after praying to God for strength, he returns to work. When deployed to meet at Ono fails, his enemies attempt to get him to take a meeting inside the temple. They hire a false prophet who uses the pretense of a threat to Nehemiah's life to get him to meet him inside the temple. Once inside, Nehemiah would be trapped, and they could, at the very least, accuse him of cowardice or, better yet, charge him with desecrating the holy space. Because only priests were allowed to enter that space. But as before, Nehemiah sees through their subterfuge. And again, he responds by prayer, asking God to remember his enemies. Whether Nehemiah faced direct assaults or was threatened with violence or the subtle machinations of false prophets, his response is consistently appropriate and measured. Now, this is a memoir. And so I suppose we could be a little skeptical and argue that he's trying to make himself look better than he really is, perhaps. But even so, we can see the underlying patterns of how he avoided the common pitfalls, the distractions, the discouragements, the fears that we all also face in our daily living and discipleship. Let me highlight three of those today. First, Nehemiah remembers to pray. We've seen every week now that he prays. The work began with prayer and fasting, and he has prayed through every difficulty that he has faced. So when an open letter threatened to spread false rumors about him, he went again to God in prayer. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. When false prophets and a false prophetess tried to ruin his reputation and make him afraid, he again prayed, oh my God, according to the things that they did and also <clears throat> the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid, he goes to God and asks God to deal with them. I know that for many people, prayer is often the last resort. People turn to God in desperation only after having tried everything else, only after having tried to fix everything on their own, only after having exhausted all their own resources. I suppose it's better late than never to turn to God in prayer. But as a people of faith, shouldn't we turn to God first in prayer? An ongoing concern of mine has been that as a church, we have really struggled over the years to pray regularly as a church. Because our congregation is so spread out, it's always been difficult to meet in a central location for regular times of prayer as a church. Some of you old-timers might recall that we even tried to have morning prayers at one point. But last year, thanks to being forced to, worship service, uh, to have worship services online, we realized that we could also hold weekly prayer meetings online. It seemed like such an obvious solution and such a blessing. It's not ideal, obviously, but it does provide an easy way for the whole church to come together to pray. Now, I know that most of you are not used to attending weekly prayer meetings. I know that it's awkward praying online. And I know that some of you are just simply very tired of Zoom meetings. Many of you are just plain tired. I get it. But I'm still asking you to come and pray. I'm asking you to make this time to incorporate this spiritual discipline into your routines and schedule this year. Maybe you can't come every Wednesday, but can you come once a month? As a member of this church, won't you spend just one hour, once a month, to pray together with the whole body? We as a church need to pray together. To put it simply, without prayer, we can do nothing truly worthwhile. And it's not even that we need to pray so that we can ask God for more blessings. Praying together is an opportunity for us to care for one another, to demonstrate love for the whole body and for the whole church. And even more importantly, it's an opportunity to know God, to be in God's presence and to enjoy him together. So I call upon this whole body to make praying together a priority this year. Secondly, Nehemiah remembered his identity. He remembered who he is. When he was asked to take the meeting in Ono, oh he declined by saying, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And when he was asked to come to a meeting inside the temple to hide, he again declined and said, should a man such as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. He knew what his work was. He knew his calling. The wall needed to be finished and he would not be distracted. He also knew that he was the governor and he wasn't going to run and hide. He also knew that he was not a priest and that he should not enter the sacred space reserved only for the priests. Because he knew who he was, he knew what he had to do and what he should not do his decisions and his actions arose from his self-understanding from his self-identity as a servant of god he did not allow the situation to sway or to dictate his actions or to change who he is instead of responding in fear or following the misleading advice of others His identity in God informed how he would respond. You've you've got to get this right. When you find yourself in a difficult situation, when you are tempted to sin, do not forget who you are. You are in Christ. You are a Christian. You are a committed spouse. You are a faithful student. You are a child of the Almighty God. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are beloved. You are to be holy. And you've been called to this church at this time to do ministry with this group of people. God has given you a ministry to fulfill. Know who you are and act accordingly. And third, Nehemiah remembered God's word. He knew that he was not allowed in the temple. <clears throat> he knew, for example, Numbers 18, which states that only Levites were permitted inside the temple and that others would be punished with death. And because he knew God's word, he understood that these so-called prophets had been bought out by his enemies to make him afraid and sin and ruin his reputation. Even though what they said might have sounded okay and innocuous, he knew that their words were contrary to the word of God. And so he knew that they were not thinking about him. Discernment and wisdom for living comes from knowing God's word and knowing God through God's word. Now, God's word isn't going to tell you directly every decision that you need to make, which job you should take or where you should live or what you should study in college or when to buy or sell shares of GameStop. But God's word will guide you and protect you from sin. Psalm 119.9 says, how can a young person or an old person keep his way pure? by keeping it according to God's word. The world may tell you to make decisions based on the bottom line or what's most comfortable or what everyone else is doing, but God's word reminds us, as in Proverbs 14, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Instead, Jesus calls us to follow him because he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. So what do we learn from God's word from Nehemiah? At this point, I know I'm sounding like a broken record, but what Nehemiah is highlighting is not his piety, nor his leadership skills, nor anything else that he might boast about himself as most memoirs do. Instead, Nehemiah's main interest is to testify about God. When Nehemiah initially approached the king and made the enormous request to rebuild the wall and it was granted to him, Nehemiah testified, for the good hand of my God was upon me. He gave all the credit to God. When he got to Jerusalem, he urged the Israelites to rebuild the wall with him, encouraging them with this testimony. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been good upon me for good. And when the work began and his enemies began to mock their efforts, Nehemiah turned again to testify that the God of heaven will make us prosper. He gave the credit again to God. Later, when the morale got low, he once again encouraged the congregation to remember the Lord, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Similarly, when their lives were threatened with violence, Nehemiah reminded them that it is our God who will fight for us. God will fight for us. Again and again and again, Nehemiah testifies about how good and how great God is. That's what his memoir is all about. That's what his life is all about. It's about God, not about him, and about what God has done for his people. And so when the wall is finished, He unsurprisingly testifies. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. Why? For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Even their enemies had to acknowledge that the rebuilding of the wall was only possible because of God. Everyone doubted that the wall could be built at all. And no one thought it could be done in just 52 days. The fact that it was done so quickly is evidence of God's favor and God's power. The people, even their enemies, could not deny it. Yes, the people worked very hard. Yes, they had good leadership. But ultimately, it's God. As Psalm 127 reminds us, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And isn't this the kind of memoir we want to write about our lives and about our church? Isn't this how we want to approach all of our work, whether at school or in our jobs and more certainly in the ministries of the church, to give God the glory, to testify about God and give God the glory? That's the point. It's all about God not us. Whatever we do, we do so that all will acknowledge the goodness and the greatness of our God. Let me close with this. This week, I read an article by Rick Warren, the pastor of one of the largest and most influential churches in America. He began the article by asking this question. Do you know how many times I've wanted to resign as the pastor of Saddleback Church. A little surprisingly, he answered it this way. Just about every Monday morning. That's quite an admission, isn't it? We can imagine given his responsibilities, the barrage of criticisms he must receive on a daily basis. I'm not suggesting that this is how I feel, but over the years, like everyone else, I've had my share of discouragements. I'm sure all of you have also had feelings of disappointments and discouragements and have had thoughts about quitting, perhaps about leaving this church or resigning from a ministry that you have been doing for a while or perhaps even abandoning your faith altogether. Hopefully, not every Monday morning. Just because what we are doing is what God has called us to do, it does not mean that God will make magically all our doubts and fears and obstacles and enemies disappear. During the reconstruction on the wall, Nehemiah faced not only political enemies, which he might have expected, but also internal strife. And food shortages caused by a famine. Nehemiah must have wondered, God, can't you at least make it a little bit easier? Why do you have to add a famine on top of everything else we're going through? But what we see is that God does not regularly or miraculously intervene to remove every threat against us. Instead of erasing hardships, and oppositions, and obstacles. God gives us wisdom, neighbors, faith, his spirit, and other resources so that we can deal with them. He calls upon us to trust him. Why? Because when we do that, God brings glory to himself. Occasionally, God will bring glory to himself. By demonstrating his overwhelming power, like when he split and divided the Red Sea to deliver the people of Israel. But more ordinarily, God's glory is revealed as the people of God trust him and go about doing the work of the kingdom in faith and in faithfulness. The letter of James says this For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance. Has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. God could prevent all opposition and obstacles in our way, but instead, God allows them for our good, for our growth. I'm not suggesting to know how some seemingly meaningless and unjust suffering can be redemptive, but I can trust that God continues to be in control and that whatever trials I might face can become opportunities for my growth and God's greater glory. In rebuilding the wall and going through all the challenges that came along with it, Nehemiah and his people became a more faithful people and they discover in a deeper way the goodness and the greatness of God. And it was, their tes- it was their faithfulness that testified to the world of God's greatness. And that testimony brings glory to God. Now, we are obviously not rebuilding a wall, but we are rebuilding what that broken wall represents, disgrace among other peoples and nations. The people of Nehemiah's day wondered how could it be that God would bring his people back from exile to the promised land only to leave them among such ruin? That's not a very powerful or loving God. I remember many years ago, one of the churches that we were working with in the Dominican Republic didn't have a roof on their church. And when the rains came, some of the locals made fun of them Mocking their God because their God didn't give them a roof when the rains came. The lack of a roof, like the broken walls in Nehemiah's day, disgraced God's name. And I remember when some of you heard about that, you immediately raised the funds so that we could send it to them, so that they could get a roof on their church right away, so that they could testify, our God is a great God who will provide for us what we need and silence those who would mock God. In recent months, it seems to me that God's name has been especially disparaged and dragged through the mud because some Christians participate in heinous acts such as attacking the national capital in the name of God and in the name of Jesus Christ. God's name has been ridiculed because those who profess white supremacy and Christian nationalism claim to represent true Christian faith. God's name is scorned because the people of God too often remain passive and do not stand alongside the brokenhearted, the weak, the suffering. We need to ask ourselves, to what role, however small, might God be calling us in God's work of rebuilding his kingdom at this time? How might we engage with our neighbors to remove or at least to reduce the disgrace upon the name of Jesus Christ? What might we do so that the, so that the world will see that the people of God, despite our differences, are united and that we continue to love one another and that we continue to love our neighbors. What work of rebuilding, of restoration and reconciliation might we do this year together to move our neighbors to acknowledge the goodness and greatness of our God? Can we as 1 Peter 2 says, keep our behavior excellent among our neighbors so that in the things in which they slander us as evildoers, they may because of our good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. I obviously don't have any idea what's going to happen this year. But I'm confident that we will face some unexpected difficulties. And I'm also confident that we will experience incredible moments of grace and opportunities to bring God glory. Whatever is broken in your life or in our church and even in this country and the world, it is an opportunity for us to do ministry together to rebuild and give God glory. That's our mission and our hope. Remember to pray. Remember your identity. Remember God's word. So that our lives and our life together can bring God greater glory. That's the testimony we can bear with Nehemiah. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you once again for your word. And God, we confess that anything that we accomplish is only possible because of you. In whatever work that you lead us in this year, help us to do it with all of our hearts and to always give you all the glory. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray. Our Father.
0: Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors.